This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. The Panama Papers and various stories about money laundering, including by banks like ING, have revealed the world of the uber-rich and the ways that they hide their money. A new book goes inside this world to show how the world of the wealthiest people and even corrupt leaders of countries are able to accumulate money and sometimes at the expense of their own people. Moneyland, the inside story of the crooks and kleptocrats who rule the world, shows us how these schemes are getting bigger and apparently with no end in sight. It was written by journalist Oliver Bullough, whose two previous books were about Russian history and politics. Bullough also runs a kleptocracy tour in London. We'll discuss whether money laundering operations are on the rise and how this mindset is being passed down from one generation to the next. Oliver, pleasure to have you with us today. Thanks very much for having me. Great to be here. Thank you. Uh, Obviously, you have the tours that you do, but in general, what was it about this particular topic that first drew your interest? Well, I'm a a Russianist, uh, or rather possibly a former Soviet Unionist. I lived in, in Moscow for a long time. I travel a lot in that part of the world, and it became increasingly clear to me that the big problem, the reason why democracy kind of failed to to appear after communism fell, as I suppose we all hoped it would, was because of the this pervasive corruption, this growing kleptocracy. And I started looking into how that works, you know, just trying to understand the mechanism, how money is stolen, how it's hidden and how it's spent. And I and I stumbled over this. I mean, it was only a, a discovery to me. I think lots of people had knew about the fact it existed. But I stumbled over this this global industry of 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 money laundering of hiding money and and it became increasingly clear that the problem I was looking into was not a, a Russian problem or a Ukrainian problem or a Kazakhstan problem it was a global problem a problem whereby the money is is stolen in in Russia it's it's laundered offshore somewhere in, in the British Virgin Islands or in Switzerland or wherever and and then it's spent in in London or in New York and and it became um my sort of mission, if you will, um, the reason that I wrote this book was to expose the complicity of Western countries in the looting of so much of the world. That this isn't, I think, corruption is something we think about it that happens overseas. You know, corruption is an, is an issue in, in Afghanistan or in Malaysia or in Venezuela or in Russia. Um, it isn't. Corruption is something that happens here, too, whether in, in my country or in yours. What then do you think it is really that has driven the ability of the super wealthy to be able to do a lot of these activities and become even richer? Is it the failed actions of government on policy that is probably one of the main reasons? Um, I mean, there are there are many answers to that question. I, I, I did a talk in a school the other day um, in which uh, one of the kids asked me that, that question in, in pretty much in pretty much those terms. And um and the way I tried to explain it was by looking at supermarkets. You know, supermarkets brought in over the last decade or two these these automated machines, so you don't have to buy from a person anymore. You just scan your uh, your your product, your produce with a machine, and then you pay for it, and then you walk out without anyone actually checking whether you've paid for what you've walked out with. Um, you know, they've done studies. This 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 system increases uh, theft. Uh, from supermarkets by about 100 percent. It doubles the amount that gets stolen from supermarkets by a, um, and, and that's essentially because it's so easy to steal now. Um, so what it is, what's what's changed, what's made it so, so um, 
uh, widespread for very rich and powerful people, particularly from places like Russia or Nigeria, to steal so much money is it's just become so easy. It's become that in a, in, a, in a global financial system, they can just walk out of the supermarket without having to check their products with anyone. Um, so the, the global financial system, the international financial system, the sort of offshore centers of finance essentially provide an open door from their countries to the world that mean that they can just walk out of their countries with as much money as they like, stash that money offshore and then spend it without anyone realizing that it's them that's done it. That's the core problem is the way globalization has worked. Globalization money has become international money is transnational. It, it, ex it exists everywhere and nowhere. Um, and that's what the problem is, that, that, that essentially governance uh, has not caught up with money. Money moves freely from country to country. Uh, law, and, law and law enforcement can't. So it becomes very easy if you're very wealthy to just put your money wherever you like. Um, essentially, that means you put your money where it will be treated best, and where you will get le less scrutiny for it. So then does, does this mean that you are maybe even more so concerned moving forward that these problems will get worse before they get better? Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, I mean, I, I like your optimism, the idea that they will get better. I mean, I'm not sure, sadly, that that's necessarily a given. Right, um, right. You, you know, there, there were there, there have been you know, occasional sporadic attempts to coordinate global efforts to to combat this sort of um, wave of money. But the, but the, what that requires is is international cooperation. We need, you know, your country, my country, all the all the countries in the world, but particularly the, the wealthy countries to cooperate together, to harmonize their regulations, to agree to to deny this 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 dirty money, the, the bolt holes that it finds in our in our property markets and so on. But but at the moment, it's very difficult to see any sign of that happening. Um, uh, the, the various political changes that have happened just in the UK and the US over the last four or five years, in fact, make it significantly less likely that it will happen now than it would have been, say, five years ago. So um, I'm, I'm not currently feeling optimistic. I mean, you've got to try and see the hopeful side of everything, but, but it's difficult to see at the moment where any kind of, of global um, movement would come from that would, that would really make any difference in, in, in battling this kind of money. And, and I think what we need to recognize is that the, the victims of this money laundering, though it, obviously it's annoying if you're from Los Angeles or New York or, or London and you can't afford to buy a house because so much foreign money has come in and pushed prices out of the reach of ordinary people, and that you, you may feel annoyed by that. The, the true victims of what's happening are victims in places like Afghanistan and places like Nigeria or Russia or Venezuela, where so much money has been stolen that the entire mechanism of states has, has been transformed into a looting machine. There is no longer any kind of honest government at all, really. Um, and that's the, 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 the victims of the, the people in these countries who just want to get on with living an ordinary life and are unable to because there is essentially no honest uh, state institutions that they can turn to for any kind of justice. What about here in the United States specifically and, and how the structure of some states are set up so that that individuals and entities can be able to to hide money uh, in in a rather easy fashion. Oh, it's funny you should say that. I'm I'm sitting here at my desk in 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 Wales in the UK, and I've I've got a, a folder on the desk in front of me, which I was just looking at before um before I came on air. Called uh, with it, it says on the outside the South Dakota Trust Association, um, and inside is a whole series of promotional literature for the South Dakota Trust industry. Right. Um, and this is um, one of the many most fascinating to me examples of the way that the U.S. states are competing with each other um, in order to attract this money from around the world, in order to bring it 
to, to their state. South Dakota has been extremely successful in doing so, particularly in attracting money from China into its trust industries. But obviously, Florida has put a lot of money into its banks, uh, New York and California, a lot of money into their real estate, Nevada the same. Um, yeah, the, the, essentially, the U.S. states all are, try, are competing with each other to try and bring as much of the money in. And, and inevitably, what you end up with is, is what, what, what might be termed a race to the bottom, whereby they undercut each other frantically in order to try and prevent someone getting one up and getting more of this money than, than, than they'd like. And the consequence of this is that you have fewer checks than there should be on the origin of money. You have um, a willingness to, to pass laws that treat this money more generously than it would otherwise be, be treated. And, and, and in the long run, you have people um, from China, from Russia, from, from, from Afghanistan, from South America, from wherever, who are stealing fortunes um, and are being able to stash this money via you know, financial structures in places like South Dakota and then invested in the U.S. economy um, to the detriment of almost everybody. Um, apart from a few lawyers in, in Sioux Falls or, or a few bankers in, in Miami, no one benefits from this at all. Um, and, and it's, it's the, the, the ability of those lawyers and those bankers to, to bend the ears of their local state legislatures and get um, laws passed that, that benefit them and, and, and harm everyone else is, is legendary and it's really troubling and we kind of need to start learning to do something about it. But then would you say that, and when you've, when people have talked about this this topic of money laundering in the past, uh, usually it's somehow linked into some sort of Hollywood or Hollywood film or TV show. Uh, but would you say that then because of this activity within the states here in the U.S., that it is maybe taking an element of the traditional offshore account away? It's it's eating away at that? Or is that traditional offshore account still very much a strong entity in this industry? Well, this is actually one of the most fascinating developments of the last 10 years or so, which is that after the global financial crisis, the, the federal government in Washington worked very hard to, to, to crack down on offshore finance, the offshore financial industry. Um, they, they put a lot of effort into, into bullying Switzerland, into opening up its very opaque banking system, into, into bullying the, the traditional tax havens, places like the Bahamas or the Cayman Islands, uh, to, to stop offering the kind of sort of um, bolt holes for money that allowed so many Americans to dodge taxes. And, and, the, and the federal government was actually very successful in doing this. They, they managed to, to really shut down a lot of the hidey holes where, where Americans were able to dodge taxes. Right. Um, but the, the unfortunate and ironic side effect of, of what happened was that in forcing these countries to reveal so much information about their own financial systems to the U.S., they then provided an incentive for all that money that had been hidden in Switzerland and the Bahamas or elsewhere to come to the U.S. instead. So... Now, if you want to hide your money and make sure that, that your own government doesn't find out about it, I mean, if you're American, I'm afraid that's going to be difficult. But if you're anyone else, um, the best place to do it is in the U.S. So now there is a, a, a strong trend of, of um, anonymously owned money from overseas, from, from traditional offshore centers to, to come onshore, what might be called onshore or midshore, perhaps, in places like Nevada or Wyoming, South Dakota, Alaska. Delaware and so on, in order to to gain the kind of secrecy that used to only be available in places like Switzerland, um, the U.S. It's no no exaggeration to say that the U.S. is is the is the world's new tax haven, and in fact, it's it's increasingly shaping up to be a really a super tax haven, a tax haven with the kind of 
of potential and, 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 and reach that, that previous tax havens could only really dream of. It's, it's funny you mentioned Delaware because we had uh, talked on this show a while back about how you will see in many cases uh, shell companies that have offices somewhere in the state of Delaware. There's no furniture in the office. There's nobody realistically in the office, yet it is a company set up to be able to, to work some of this activity because of how the structure is set up in the state of Delaware. I mean, that's right. I mean, Delaware, it should be said, I mean, it, it, Delaware isn't by any means the worst offender right. among U.S. states. Some, some places are, are, are even worse. But it, it's very interesting, um, again, looking at the way other countries have been obliged to change their regulations uh, in order to fit in with the demands of the federal government, places like the British Virgin Islands, uh, like um, St. Kitts and Nevis, Vanuatu, the kind of exotic tax havens, what, what were called, used to be called sunny places for shady people in, in, in the Pacific <laughs> or in, in, in the Caribbean. Yeah. Um, you know, these places are now, you know, they're, I'm not saying they're perfect, they're, but they're better than they used to be in terms of trying to check their client's identity before working with them. You know, um, and, and there is now a degree of information that can be prized out of these jurisdictions. They're nowhere near as, as sort of opaque as they used to be. But, um, you know, I have friends who work for the FBI and I say to them, you know, can you get any information about a Nevada shell company? And they just laugh at me. No, of course they can't. Um, that information doesn't exist. So the kind of tricks that used to be available in, in the Caribbean tax havens, um, there are very few of them that still provide that kind of secrecy, very, just a handful, whereas it's very easy now and astonishingly easy and very cheap to get that kind of secrecy in, in the United States. So, um, you know, the, 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 the really problematic jurisdictions now are, are what used to be the, the big onshore jurisdictions, the U.S. and, of course, the U.K. I mean, I, I don't get me wrong, I'm not... I don't want to beat up only on the U.S. here. My own country is, is, is behaving pretty heinously as well. So, you know, we have in our, in our effort to, to crack down on financial crime and tax dodging in, in the small offshore jurisdictions, we've essentially um, achieved quite a lot of what we were aiming for. But, but, in, in, but the side effect of that has been that, that um, a lot of that money has come into our own countries in the U.S. and the U.K. And, we're, and we, we appear to be much worse. Um, cleaning up our own countries than we are cleaning up foreigners. You met, you mentioned uh, having spent a lot of time in Russia. Obviously, you know what has occurred in that country, uh, but with other countries ar- around the globe and, and the element uh, of the political side to this story and how a lot of this activity has influenced politics in countries around the world. How significant a problem is that right now? And I will use the example of Venezuela and what is going on in that country uh, with Nicolas Maduro and obviously the political fight going on, but how many people are, are, you know, losing their health, losing their lives because of some of the actions in that country. When, uh, a, a democracy is, is transformed into a kleptocracy, into a, into a country where the government and, and the officials essentially exist and, and have their positions only to steal as much as they can. Then, um, then it, it's essentially become, um, you know, it's, it's on the way to being a failed state. You know, people will just keep stealing more and more and more. They will steal as much as they can get away with. Um, and that inevitably starves, you know, public infrastructure projects, public services, hospitals, schools, the army, the police of the resources they need to do their job. And then you have, you know, governments lose control of their territory. They lose control of, of, of the processes that are happening. I mean, you can see this happening in, in Ukraine, where obviously it lost large bits of its territory to sort of Russian-backed separatists. It's obviously happened in Afghanistan, where the Taliban is on the march. It's happened in Nigeria, where whole chunks of the north of the country are in the hands of terrorist groups. Um, it's happened in Libya. It's happened in Syria. 
it's happening very widely that these these kleptocratic regimes have stolen so much money that they're essentially no longer able to function as a, as a government anymore. Um, and yes, Venezuela, of course, is a, is a, is a perfect example of that. Um, and I think that Venezuela demonstrates the second point rather nicely as well, which is the, the way that um, beneath the kind of layer of politics, beneath the layer of rhetoric, we see a, a sort of deeper form of business going on, um, which, which really um, undermines a lot of what, what people say is happening. You know, there's been a lot of sort of a war of words between Venezuela and the United States for a long time, with the, the Venezuelan government accusing the U.S. government of being, you know, evil, the source of all imperialism and so on. But if you look at, you know, the, the, where, the US, where the Venezuelan elite likes to put their money, they, they invest their money in Florida, in Floridan real estate. You know, so, so with one hand, they're saying that the U.S. is the source of all evil in the world. And with the other hand, they're putting all their money in the U.S. Yeah. Um, so it, it's pretty clear that rhetorically they're, um, they're, they're, they're essentially just using the U.S. as, a, as a, you know, a, something to, to try and scare their enemies with and to try and sort of whip up their supporters. Well, actually, they don't believe any of it. Um, you know, when it comes to their own personal material interests, they think the U.S. is absolutely fine. Um, and this is something that you see more broadly um, in kleptocracies everywhere. In, in Russia, you know, Vladimir Putin claims to to, to be sort of a, a new anti-Western power, but all of his friends put all their money in London or in New York or, or in, in France. Um, you know, so, so all of these, you know, they're very integrated into the global financial system, into the Western-dominated financial system, but politically they claim to be some kind of alternative to it. Um, and again, that's, a, that's just part of the way kleptocracies work, the sort of populist messages, this, this whipping up kind of um, hatred towards foreigners and so on, while, while, while secretly just in it on a business level, engaging with business as usual. Is it, is it harder now to be able to really get a gauge on how much money is, is kind of being laundered in, in these types of manners, especially when you factor in the digital technology side of, uh, of, of what is probably being used by a lot of these people right now? It, it's always been hard. Um, it, I, I think it, it, it gets harder and harder. I mean, like you, I mean you're right that the news of the cryptocurrencies, I mean, they're not really being used in a massive scale yet, but I'm sure they will become yeah. so, and that will make it harder still. Um, but essentially, if you're rich enough, any currency is a cryptocurrency. Um, if you're rich enough, you can hide almost unlimited quantities of money, provided you can hire the right people to do it for, for you. Um, in terms of how much money is being hidden, um, Gabriel Zuckman, who's a, an economist at the, in the University of California in Berkeley, um, he estimates it's, it's somewhere between 11 and 12 percent of all the money in the world. Um, that's quite a conservative estimate. Some people say it's rather more than that. Um, but it's an incredible amount of money. Um, and that amount of money is growing all the time by you know hundreds of billions of dollars or perhaps as much as a trillion dollars is stolen from the world's poorest countries every year and stashed in, in the place that I call Moneyland, this this sort of secret country of, of the very, very rich and powerful. Um, so it, it's a, yeah, it, it is a it is a endlessly growing um, realm of, of, of hidden money. And, and, and that means it's, it's an ever bigger problem. I did want to spend a couple of minutes talking about the tours that you give, and obviously yeah. this, this is a unique thing. You know, everybody when they are when they are traveling to a destination likes to go on a tour of some kind. Tell us more about what exactly these tours are. Well, I mean, you know, London, like like most tourists. Like, like most cities with a lot of tourists and you get these bus tours, you know, with and they drive around London and there's Buckingham Palace and there's the Houses of Parliament and there's, I don't know, um, Baker Street where Sherlock Holmes lived and so on. You know, all the usual nonsense. Um, so we, we essentially hijack that idea and we have a bus. And instead of showing off the kind of 
famous tourist landmarks that we like to think are, are, are the main adornments of London. We instead show the houses that belong to kleptocrats and, and um, in you know, in plain sight, you know, where the world's biggest crooks are hiding their money and, and, and getting to enjoy it, you know, very nicely. So yeah. uh, we start off uh, on the bank of the Thames, uh, just uh, just downriver from Parliament, um, where the Russian deputy prime minister has a very luxurious uh, duplex apartment. Um, and then and then where we go next is kind of depending on how we feel on the day. We've got um, Nigerian regional governors. We've got a lot of Ukrainians, a lot of Kazakhs, a lot of Azeris, um, Angolans. Um, you know, all sorts, really, uh, Egyptians, Libyans, Bahrainis, you know, we are Pakistanis. We, you know, London is, is one of the capitals of Moneyland, London and New York, probably the twin capitals of Moneyland. Um, this is the place where the world's most discerning and most powerful crooks like to come and bring their cash. And that when they bring their cash to London, they like to buy luxury property and they like to fill their luxury property with luxury things, you know, with art and uh, and, you know, top end hi fis and so on. So, you know, it, it's the, the the kleptocracy tour. It's a bit of fun. Um, they are fun. Sure. People enjoy doing them. And uh, but but they're also they have a serious point. You know, the idea is to to demonstrate that, like I said, corruption is not something that happens overseas. Corruption is something that happens everywhere. You know, the the when money is stolen from somewhere, um, that place is corrupt. But if that if the money is spent somewhere else, then the place where it's spent is also corrupt. You know, money doesn't stop being corrupt just because it's passed through the financial system. It's the same money. Um, so that was the idea of the kleptocracy tours. And actually, I, I'm, I'm pleased to say, I mean, I, it's my friend Roman who probably organizes them. He deserves the credit, not me. But but um, the um, they've been successful. We've had a lot of people on them and um, and a lot of politicians, a lot of media interest, a lot of NGOs and and I think that we've succeeded in changing the terms of the debate, that there is a much greater recognition in Britain now that, that London and, and London's role laundering the world's money is a real problem. Well, and, um, it, and we'd, we'd like to bring them to the US too. We'd like to do them in New York and in Miami and in Los Angeles. Um, you know, and, and one of these days we'll get around to it. Well, and there's something to be said about the fact that, you know, in years past, the money that was laundered in many cases was hidden for a while. Now you really don't even have to, to hide it as much. No, I mean it is. It is a. It's, um, I mean, I don't know. It, there, there are there are pluses and minuses. It is in some ways. It's, London is getting a, a sort of a less comfortable place for people with with money. We've got new legal instruments to try and drive some of the money away. But but you know the 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 world's kleptocrats are still voting with their feet. They're still coming here. Um, they're still buying property. They're still buying you know yachts and fine art and so on. And um, so we've got a lot more to do. We're, we're not done yet. Yeah. Oliver, great book. Uh, it is a fantastic look at, at a global problem, and thank you for coming on the show today. That's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Oliver Bulla. The, uh, the book is titled Moneyland, the inside story of the crooks and kleptocrats who rule the world. Really does give you a, a great in-depth look at uh, some of the problems that are going on in locations uh, around the world. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.